Hey, call out cultists. Welcome to Ask Alaska. It's been a minute. I put out a call for some questions a while back and the world just got kind of busy and I never got a chance to get back around to doing an Ask Alaska episode. So uh, here we are kicking off the new year in the only way we know how with a new episode of Ask Alaska. So let's get to the questions. The first question comes from Chumzilla. And Chum's question is, the time has come. The apocalypse has passed. It's on some Mad Max shit. Now there's only a few producers left. Ultimately, unfortunately, Alchemist, Primo, Sir Jenks, Muggs, Large Professor, and himself and others did not make it. Uh, you're in some weird deal with whomever is the humongous character uh, is of the time where to stay alive and live well, you have to make records with the choice of producers presented to you. Which of these producers do you choose to stay alive? So, they are Ron Browse, Eminem, Eric Sermon in 98 to 2003 mode, Just Blaze pre-Rockefeller, and Death is an option, but any bit of unreleased and current material that you have gets rehashed, hoard out until the end of time, like Pac and Dilla's catalog. So... I guess this would be the reverse of a Sophie's choice because there's nothing here that I love um, and I can only save one. So I'm going to try to keep living because I'm like one of those optimist dudes. It's like, as long as you're still breathing, you could find a way to go forward. Um, so number five is off the table for me. I don't really know just blazes work pre Rockefeller, so I can't speak to it. I don't know who Ron Browse even is. So he doesn't get picked. So pre Rockefeller, just blaze gone. Ron Browse sending him to the guillotine. Eminem. I think we've done quite a bit of work on, uh, Eminem's production catalog and how it is the bootcut genes of production. So that one is going into the grinder that killed Michael Myers at the end of Halloween ends. Spoiler alert, but it's a terrible movie, so don't go and see it anyway. So that leaves one choice, and that is Eric Sermon from 98 to 2003. This will definitely upset my friend Castro because of his hatred of all things Green Eye Bandit. But, you know, I'm, a, I'm an EPMD fan. I, I really have no issues with any of... Well, I mean, that's actually incorrect because there's some Eric Sermon stuff that I hate. But... Um, you know, I could go with that 98 to 2003 window. It's not the greatest, but there's some stuff in there. Um, I think like the Def Squad album came out then, if I'm not mistaken. Like El Nino, is that is that in that window? Let's see, yeah, El Nino fits in that window. And I, I really actually liked El Nino. So I know a lot of people probably did not, probably didn't age well, similar to like Dre's 2001, but you know, based off of the nostalgia factor alone and the opportunity to work with someone who I've always enjoyed, um, at least, you know, definitely the EPMD days, um, some of his stuff with Redman, um, you know, I don't have to have him as a guest rapper on there, right? So yeah, I'm going to go with uh, Eric Sermon. Sorry, Castro. And uh, Chum, thank you for your question. Uh, our next question comes to us from Nate. Uh, and you know, this is via email. So I only know you as Nate. 
Uh, I apologize. But uh, so for an amateur selling beats, what route would you recommend? Well, Nate, I think immediately having the title amateur selling beats is a bit of an oxymoron because once you're selling beats, you are no longer an amateur. You are a professional. Professional indicates that you're getting paid. Amateur indicates that you are not. So change that mindset a little bit. If you if you want to be selling beats and getting beats out there and getting money off of your production, uh, you're a professional. So pat yourself on the back. Um, get yourself a coffee mug that says world's greatest dad, put it on your production desk because you're a professional now, motherfucker. And welcome to the professional club. Uh, as far as like selling beats, I'm, I'm assuming cause you're saying you're an amateur that, you know, you don't have a large catalog out there or, um, work that anybody's really, really hip to right now. My suggestion would be to either find, you know, somebody that you know in your area or you know somebody that you think is is a dope rapper um that you you have access to and work on a project with them put something out that shows showcases your work right so you could either do an instrumental album or like i said even you know if you're you're in a scene that has a bunch of different rappers Go out and and create a project, something that you can you can sort of sell out there, put out there as a calling card. Um, you know, it's easy to self release release music now, way easier than it used to be, but that also makes it a little bit harder to cut through the clutter. But I I think once you start doing some things like that, you have a better opportunity of seeing your work getting seen. Um, I, I, often, I have a lot of students that I talk to and they're always like, you know, how do I get a recommendation letter from this person that I've never spoken with? Um, and it's like anything else. Like you have to build relationships. I think just like putting up a link like, hey, I'm a producer here, buy my beats. That's not going to do you anything. Like I, I think the more important thing is like building a resume and building relationships, right? So if there are people that you're interested in working with, um, start trying to build a relationship with them first and then talk about doing beats. Um, and again, like, you know, if you're doing a project with somebody, depending on, on what the nature of that project is, it might be a better use of your time to do the project with not like the hope of future earnings, but I guess with the hope of future earnings, like, you know, if you, if you want to work with a rapper and there's a particular rapper you want to work with, don't charge up front for the beats. Just be like, hey, let's work on a project together. Let's be partners on this project. 50-50 split on the work, you know, anything that comes in after pro after uh, costs are covered. And same thing, like 50-50 on costs going in. Um, I think, to me, that's a better way to work a relationship and get your work out there. I think it provides you with much more control over what happens. It also um, prevents you from being taken advantage of, I think. You know, I think the idea of doing something for free up front can seem like you're being taken advantage of, but if it's something that you're investing in, that's different. So, right, so if you're investing in a project with your time, potentially money and effort, as opposed to like giving something to somebody and hoping that they give you something on the back end, I think you're you're in much more control when you're investing in in the work that you're doing. So that would be my recommendation. I wouldn't like 
go out there and try to like just like pimp out your beats to anybody on Twitter. Um, I always think that's until you have a resume, maybe like once you have, you know, a, a bit of a resume where people know your work somewhat and you don't have to be huge. I mean, I see like a lot of producers that I know that don't have huge followings that can go out there and say, hey, you know, I'm selling some beat packs, hit me up because they've done some projects. They've done some projects where they've sold a couple of hundred records. It doesn't have to be huge, but you know, they have recognition. Recognition and a back catalog show a lot more than just being like, hey, I'm trying to get on this way. Um, so I'm, I'm always much more lean towards like the DIY and then build your resume and go off of that. That would be my take. Um, but I'm not a producer, so I don't know how that specifically works. It's how I look at doing projects. So like if a producer hits me up, um, I'm not like trying to like buy beats off of somebody I don't know. Um, and I don't like do projects with people until I have a relationship with them because, you know, especially as you get older, you're putting your time into things and time is way more valuable than money. Um, in a lot of ways, especially with something like music, like for most of us, music is the thing that we love and we're passionate about. It's not something that is covering our entire income or our bills. Um, but it's something that we spend our free time doing. And when somebody wastes your free time, that's really a huge slap to the face. I've had that happen with some people before and I would never, never ever work with those people again. Um, so, so that's, that's my advice, you know, um, invest in yourself, protect your time and start building relationships. Um, that's really going to be the best way forward for trying to, to get yourself out there, potentially start making money off of beats and, grow your profile as an artist, but also keep your sanity and avoid the burnout that inevitably comes with throwing shit at a wall to see what sticks. Speaking of building relationships, after the break, uh, we're going to come back with a question from Twitter that kind of talks about, or uh, kind of asks about how these relationships get built. So we'll be right back. Fiber Armor, a family-owned company servicing New York for over 46 years, manufacturing awnings, windows, doors, and screen rooms. My Xerox awnings were custom-made and installed, and my neighbors feel they're a work of art. And I'm so proud of it. Our patented glass artwork designs and craftsmanship are second to none. Buying factory direct means big savings for you. And the installers I was very impressed with. Go to Fiberama. You'll be pleased. All right, and we are back. Uh, this question comes to us from Hoodie Guthrie on Twitter, uh, a.k.a. at Paul Goodbrand. Paul wants to know, when Call Out Culture was first recommended to me, I immediately thought, hey, I know Alaska from way back, and I recognize Castro's name from the Arm & Hammer features. I didn't know Zilla at the time. My question is, how did you all meet, and what led to the Adams Fam Wrecking Crew collab on a pod? So this kind of builds upon our earlier conversation about building relationships. Um, I first met Zilla Rocca when I was working on a old music site that I had. It was called Syphil, uh, which stood for shut your fucking face and listen. And it was a, a site that some friends in mine, friends of mine, uh, we put together. It was kind of 
a way for us to transition down from being full-time musicians. So all of us were full-time musicians. You know, I was on Deaf Jokes, as you know. Uh, I was a touring musician, and my friend Joel was a guitar player in the band Rubber Room. Um, and at that time, we both were starting families. We kind of were burnt out by the grind of, of trying to be a full-time musician and make ends meet. And we transitioned into doing regular day jobs, but we still wanted to have a passion for music. We still wanted to find a way to stay connected. So we started this website and basically all we did is we wrote about music that we loved. We kind of wanted to get away from the sort of way that music criticism was trending at that time, which was using music and albums and art as a way for somebody to express their opinions on something else. Um, we just want to talk about the music, you know, as musicians, we felt that we've seen the way that our music was misrepresented by somebody who was trying to prove a point or talk about some other topic that they wanted. And, you know, they basically use a lot of word salad to basically say that they never lettered and shit shout out to three year letterman. But, um, in the process of doing that, I had come across uh, a Zillaraka video. Um, I can't remember what the video was right now, but you know, it was something that came out probably, this was probably like 2012, because I think that's around when I stopped writing, or maybe 2014. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember exactly when, when I stopped doing the, the website, but um, I found a, you know, a video for a Zilla Rocka's five o'clock shadow boxers, um, song. And I really loved it. You know, I, I reached out to him, um, about the music and I was like, Hey, this is fucking dope. I think we might've done an interview on the site. I don't 100% remember, but anyway, that's, that's what brought me into Zilla Rocka's world. Um, I heard something of his, I reached out to him and, you know, we got to talking and, through that conversation and that friendship, he introduced me to Castro because Castro was working on a project at that time. Um, and he was a big fan of Hangar 18 and Def Jux. And Zilla asked me if I would jump on the track. And I was like, of course. Um, you know, he was working with my my homie Fax One. Um, so I was like, yeah, if Fax vouches for him, he's, he's obviously dope. Let's do it. Um, so that was a, a track that ended up on the... Um, Debuild Restroy record. And, you know, just from there, we sort of had a friendship. We would text, text all, text one another, um, just kind of getting into things from there. And, you know, as, as with any like collaboration, you know, I asked them to jump on a track. They asked me to jump on a track and we just slowly started building a relationship. I think, you know, we were sort of talking to each other and we were working with each other for quite a while, I think, before we even posited the idea of doing a, a podcast. Uh, and it was something that would come up in like text conversations, like, you know, Zilla would be like, yeah, we should do a podcast. These conversations feel like a podcast. Um, and then him and Castro had the same types of conversations. So we decided to say, what the fuck? Let's see if, the, if this is something that can happen. And, you know, that's really kind of the way it worked from there. We just started doing some like test episodes to see if they felt good. Um, and they did, we liked what we were doing. So we just kept building from there. And I think that's kind of one of the things that you find 
in this space. Like it, it's kind of how Adam's family started as well. It was like, you know, we kind of ran in similar circles. We got to talking to one another. We liked what each other was doing and we were like, let's do a track together. Let's do this together. Let's, you know, somebody's like, do you want to be in the crew? I'm like, yeah, okay. Without even knowing what any of that really means. You're just like in that moment, you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll check that out. I'll try that out and see what happens. It, it's being a lot of times these things happen because you're open to allowing something to happen. When you go into them with like a goal of like, we're going to take over the, the world. This is going to be the best thing that ever happens to us. We're going to change everything. Those things usually burn out because they have such heavy expectations on them that it becomes burdensome. Um, you know, you're not going to be able to maintain that energy if you're expecting immediate outcomes. Whereas if you're just doing something because you enjoy it, those outcomes will eventually come because you will get good at what you're doing um, because you actually enjoy it. It's not a burden. And I think that that's the way it happens a lot with being involved in independent music, being involved in independent podcasting. Um, you're doing it because you love it and it, it becomes a natural thing. And it's like usually one thing leads to another. And if you follow that path and if you're open to new ideas and experiences, you're going to see a lot of growth and you're going to see a lot of opportunities, right? Like when I first started rapping back in, you know, the nineties, Jesus Christ, I'm old. Um, I never thought that in 2023, I would still be putting out music, putting out more music than I ever put out back then. And that I would be on a thing called the podcast, but like anything, it was like, you know, write a couple rhymes, go to an open mic meet a couple of people, do a show, like a real show where you're one of the featured acts. So now you got to put together an act. You got to figure out how to do that. Then you figure out, let's try to record some songs. Maybe we could get something on Stretch and Bobbito. We didn't, but you're like, maybe I can. But you start recording some songs. You meet more people. You're trading songs with one another. You see what other people are doing. Next thing you know, like, let's try to put out a record. Why not? Other people did. Why can't we? And it just becomes this thing that snowballs. It was like never any expectations that there was going to be like some superstar payday in the future. It was more like, okay, I'll try that. It's like, it's almost like improv with like, yes. And where you just kind of keep going and going forward and doing things as opportunities present themselves. Um, if you're, you know, if you're driven by ego or if you're driven by sort of transactional relationships these things tend not to happen because people see what's going on with you and you are closed off to opportunities for growth um you know like i always hear people say don't do a free show which i get right like it's frustrating when you're you're trying to come up and you are in a scene and they're like, you got to sell 25 tickets to be able to play this show that that's all bullshit or don't do pay to play that's fucking bullshit but if you're dope and you're smart and somebody gives you an opportunity to do a free show, that's not necessarily a free show. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to get more shows, to get more fans. And if you're good and you hustle, it's an opportunity to make some money selling merch. Um, so, you know, when, and I know the landscape has changed drastically. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to compare apples and oranges. It's more the idea. When we were in Hangar 18, we did free tours because we knew that if we were able to get in front of somebody's audience and they had 500 people in a city, we would be able to make a few thousand dollars that night selling merch. 
And we did that numerous times. Like we went out with artists that were much bigger than us because it gave us the opportunity to stand in front of 500 people to a thousand people, do our show, go to the merch booth and fucking make money hand over fist because you don't necessarily need that small return on a show. Like getting 50, $60 at a show, it's cool. You know, getting $250 at a show, it's cool. But are you going to say, are you going to give up the opportunity to make $2,000 because you didn't make $250? So it's kind of that like penny wise pound foolish thing. Anyway, I'm kind of drifting right now. But but the idea is that you need to be open to things happening to you and you need to like not be fucking so protected. Um, put on your bullshit detector, figure out how to work your way through bullshit. But when you find opportunities to do things and opportunities to meet people or you see somebody doing something that you think is interesting, just reach out and let them know. That could really like spark a relationship. And that's that's how Wrecking Crew and Adams and Call Out Culture happened. I saw music that Zilla Rocka made. I liked it. I reached out to him and I let him know. And from there, you know, we got a friendship. I think I've known Zilla for like almost 10 years now. So, you know, same thing with Castro. Like that led me to getting to know Castro. All these things happen simply because I sent an email to Zilla Rocca. So yeah, that's, uh, that's how that happened. So we're going to go to our next break. And, um, when we get back, we got two more questions and we will, uh, wrap this motherfucker up. So see you in a few. Fiber Amarin, a family owned company servicing New York for over 46 years, manufacturing awnings, windows, doors, and screen rooms. My bay window was custom made and installed, made my room feel so much larger. Hey, Dad, tell him how a window designs and craftsmanship are second to none. And buying factory direct saves our customers big money. After my window installation, my heating bills dropped. I was impressed with the quality, workmanship, and installation. All right, everybody, we are in the home stretch. Our final two questions. <clears throat> the next question comes from Stephen Bain. And he asks, have you heard Young Man and Celestophone album? Or have you heard the Young Man and Celestophone album from last year? If yes, can you weigh in on if weigh in on it and discuss the intersection of punk and hip hop sensibilities? Um, so I haven't heard this record. Um, I did look it up to see what it was all about. And um, I realized why I didn't hear it. Um, not the biggest fan of Paul Barman. Uh, it's not that I hate him or, you know, think he's a bad person or anything like that. Uh, it's just not something that ever clicked with me. So I, I don't really check it out. Um, but the second part of your question is an interesting one because I think that and when you look at punk rock and hip hop, they are, are two very sort of natural elements that work with one another because they both come from disaffected youth finding a way to create their own genre and medium to express themselves and express their the issues of the world as they see it and really have fun when there's nothing else for them to do. You know, it's it sort of built out of the the blight of the, the 70s where, you know, budgets were destroyed. 
Um, cities were in a lot of ways unlivable. Um, and you know, it was kids finding an outlet for everything that was impacting them in their lives. So, so that's where there, there are a lot of similarities. There's a lot of DIY uh, ethos in both of them. And, and I think that makes for a natural relation. So my issue, however, is when people try to blend the genres, they often pick the wrong things, right? So there is a want to create something that it becomes akin to like shit like rage against the machine where it's like you're bringing in the the heaviness of the guitars and like the screamy aspect of punk and trying to marry that into hip hop now i don't know if this is what happened with the album that you asked about because i haven't heard it but it's what i've seen in the past right and to me the thing that i find attractive about punk rock while i i appreciate the heaviness and the energy of it it is the song structures that i think could be really conducive to hip-hop um and i think that that's rarely done what you end up having is these you know three minute songs where somebody's rapping over heavy guitars and it it just gets fucking tired after a while it feels like some kid rock shit to me my personal taste but you can look at something like punk and there's like these sort of chorus heavy short songs that just fucking bang you boom, 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 boom. And you're fucking done. You're done with a record in 15 minutes. Right. So that's, that's kind of the thing that I look at at punk. And that's what like, I love about it. Like the, the sort of brilliance of the hook writing and, and you know, how contagious and powerful that is for getting across a message. And that's what I would like to see hip hop take when you're combining the two. And then the same thing with, with hip hop on the other side, like hip hop is a very hook driven medium as well. So, you know, you have your verses and your verses are important and MCs, we, we could be a bit precious about, you know, our lyrics and making sure that, you know, we get our verses out. But if you're going to try to combine two different genres, I think you got to find the things that are strongest about those genres and bring those together. Like with hip hop, when you sort of get away from the hip hop aesthetic, the the sort of sound of hip hop production, you lose it. It's not hip hop anymore and it's gone. Right? It's just a it's just another form of of pop songwriting. Like if you try to combine like rock and hip hop, you end up just making like some bare naked lady shit. And it never sounds good. It's just something that doesn't click right. If you're going to make hip hop and have it sort of attached to another ethos, it needs to be like the hip hop elements first. You need to have the type of production that you would traditionally have in hip hop. It could be a more aggressive brand of that production. Um, but you should take those sort of staples and bring the things that are cool about that other genre in. Right. So let's say you're doing heavy metal. The, the good artists that did that, like Gravediggers to me is a heavy metal record because it took the things that were kind of heavy and heavy metal, like the imagery of heavy metal and brought it into hip hop. But they didn't change the sound of hip hop. They made a dark hip hop record, but it wasn't like we need heavy guitars through this whole thing and we need double bass drums kicking. Where same thing with punk, like if you're going to do a punk record, 
that's hip hop. Make it sound like a hip hop record, have production. It could be high energy frenetic production, but it needs to be the sounds that are familiar with hip hop. It needs to be the drums need to sound hip hop. It could be, you know, it could be trap beat drums, but it needs to be hip hop. What you need to do is you need to cut back on your verses, make short verses, hook heavy songs, get in and out, boom, boom, boom. Like as an MC, I know you don't want to do that. You want to be able to flex styles, but you could be just as impactful with a four bar verse as you can with a 16 bar verse if you nail the hooks and you have your hook heavy songs. So, you know, that, that would be my recommendation. And to go along with my recommendation, that's something that Jason Griffin and I just did. We have an album coming out called Pop Songs for the Apocalypse, which drops on January 14th. And we did exactly this. We made an album in the spirit of Circle Jerk's group sex record, which is a 12 or 13 song album that's, you know, 14 minutes long. That's what we did. It's very hook heavy. You'll see basically everything that I talked about here and what I want to see from something that combines punk and hip hop, you'll find in our record. So sorry for the seedy pitch at the end of your question, but that's kind of uh, played into what I, I'm doing right now. So uh, Steven, thank you for your question. And we're going to our final question. This one comes to us from the homie John Bachman, who uh, I apologize, John. I was supposed to get you a track and I never did. And I'm a shithead for that. I owe you one. You have a uh, get Alaska free ticket in your pocket. Next time you need me, hit me up. And uh, I got you. And I apologize for missing your deadline. So John, um, John's question is the best rap show you've ever attended. And by contrast, the best show you missed and regretted. So my best rap show I ever attended. I mean, gosh, it's such a, it's such a big spectrum of things because, you know, I've seen like, I've seen Kanye at Madison square garden during the lights tour. And that was fucking unbelievable, right? It was like, it had to be like the, the coolest show I've ever seen live. Like it was, it was gigantic and it was just one man on stage holding an entire arena in his hand. That shit was fucking powerful as hell. I also saw Biggie and Mob Deep at Cornell University, um, which sort of aesthetically wasn't the best show. Like, you know, the actual performance wasn't great, but the energy was fucking crazy. So that is like, you know, and is Biggie and Mob Deep, like his legends. Um, I saw Common, who, you know, I don't love Common, but seeing Common on the Resurrection Tour playing like a small college in Connecticut, he fucking owned that stage. That shit was super dope. Um, I saw the first Odd Future show in New York City at... Um, what was it? It was at, I think, Webster Hall, like the little theater in Webster Hall. The place was fucking packed and it was nuts. Like, so so to me, I guess those are the coolest shows. Like the Company Flow Farewell show was really cool. Um, I also saw like a cool show. Like it, it's sort of one of those shows in New York City that everybody that ever put out an underground or was in an underground group, group was supposedly there, but there's only like 200 people there. Um, it was a show at a club called Vinyl and it was like, Juggernauts, Natural Elements, Company Flow, and Nonfiction. 
And this was like all like right when they first were dropping 12 inches and they were getting a huge buzz uh, around the city, but they weren't like the people that you knew them to become. It was more like, holy shit, we're seeing these people and we're seeing who they are. You know, it was pre, pre Twitter, pre social media, pre, I mean, it might've even been pre message board or like very early message board days. So like those, those are the ones that stand out as like the coolest shit that I've seen. Um, as far as shows that I missed and regretted, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say that I, I missed something. If I didn't see it, then I could miss it. I mean, maybe at the time, like, I don't know. I went to a lot of shows. So there's not really anything that, like, I missed and regretted. Maybe now it's like if I found out friends were in town and I missed seeing friends, that would be the, the biggest thing. But I don't really, like hang on to regret for things that I, I didn't see or didn't do. Um, which is, you know, I guess it's kind of weird, but there, there's nothing that I could really think of, you know, that I missed and regret. I guess like, you know, if I could have been, had the opportunity when I was younger to go see like, you know, public enemy or NWA or some shit like that. Um, when they were, they were big and playing stadiums, like, that would have been cool, but you know, I was probably too young to go and see that live. Um, and yeah, so I didn't even really know how to get tickets at that time. So I guess that would be my regret. I don't know, but yeah. So John, thank you for your question. Everybody who submitted a question, I appreciate your questions as well. I will try to get more of these out through the new year. Um, you know, we're going to, probably have an announcement soon about some updates to the call culture podcast and our release schedule. So, you know, expect more sort of one-off episodes like this or, you know, small sub episodes like this, uh, as we move forward. And on that note, let's get out of here with a little number that kind of inspired the formatting of what I look for in punk hip hop songs. It is a song called Deny Everything by the Circle Jerks. You'll see it's quick, it's mean, it's hook heavy, and uh, it's everything that I love in punk rock music, and I hope you love it as well. See you soon. Thank you again for listening to Ask Alaska. This is your homie, Alaska. I love you all. Peace. Innocent until I'm proven guilty. Deny everything, deny everything. I'm being afraid. It's all a setup. Deny everything, deny everything. I'm just a smoke of the wheel. Part of the puzzle. Part of the game. I'm being afraid. Innocent until I'm proven guilty. Deny.